I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It is time now, though, for Ask Me Anything with David Suzuki. Well, I will be retiring from the nature of things. You know, the nature of things was different from almost all other nature programs because it had a very strong point of view that nature was the very basis for our survival and our well-being. The warnings have been coming, you know, ever since Katrina, I thought, gee, maybe this is a moment of a shift. The signs are all around us. Global warming has already started, and we had better listen. Because what is at stake is how we will survive and if we will survive on this earth. Well, it's always great to catch up with David Suzuki. I think anytime is a great time to catch up with David Suzuki, but this week is an especially good one for all the wrong reasons. The effects of climate change are especially visible right now. Just look out your window in many cases. Uh, Maybe don't open it, though, because... You don't want that smoky air to make its way in. Environment Canada has issued special air quality statements across every region in this country over the past week. Fireworks displays this weekend were cancelled because of smoke and fire bans. And early on Friday morning, Toronto had the worst air quality of any major city in the world. Well, David Suzuki was the host of The Nature of Things for 44 years. His last show was earlier this year. He's been talking about climate change for decades on that show and elsewhere. This summer, you'll be able to hear for yourself. Starting July 11th, Ideas on CBC Radio is launching a series called Suzuki's Survival Guide. Now, we'll be chatting um, uh, Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective. You'll be uh, able to hear some of his radio work from the 80s, the 90s, and 2000s on the topic of climate change. But right now, David Suzuki is here to take your calls and answer your questions. You can ask him anything. Uh, it is the Ask Me Anything. Uh, call us at one 416 or you can text your question to us at uh, 226-758-8924. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Well, it's great being here. Thank you. So um, well, let's get right into the wildfire smoke. I mean, this lingering smoke was relentless this week. Uh, at points in time, I know even myself, I was worried about not just taking myself out, but taking my dog out for a walk. In, in your view, how much is this a sign of things to come? Like, is this the new normal? Well, of course. Uh, you know, what's really scary is that we may next year look back on 2023 and say, oh, God, it was so great last year. Every year it's uh, going to bring us surprises and uh I don't think we have much uh, to look forward to in terms of relief. The uh, the you know we've really gone over the the edge now. Uh, it's really undeniable that climate change is happening, and the the tragedy to me, and the reason I'm excited about the rebroadcast of some of uh, it's a matter of survival, which was a series that we ran in 1989. All the warnings have been here for so long. 
when you uh, hear the first show that will be uh, broadcast on the uh, 11th, you hear Lucien Bouchard, you know, this hot um, environment minister appointed by Brian Mulroney. And when you hear him, my God, he sounds like a radical. He's saying we've got to do something about global warming. It threatens the survival of our species. I mean, this is 1989. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we. I think the smoke now is finally, uh, how can you deny it? I thought maybe Katrina, Hurricane Andrew, floods in Calgary, floods in Toronto. I thought maybe that would do it. But uh, now uh, the, the quality of the air is something that uh, I think has really shocked a lot of people. How how do you hold on to hope through all those decades of the message that you've been giving? How do you, I mean, how do you keep going through that? Is, is that not frustrating for you? When you have children and grandchildren, you have no choice. Hmm. You know, hope, hope as hopium is uh, is not what we need. Uh, we, we have, and by acting, I think acting to try to make a difference is the hope. Hope without action is not hope. That's just hopium. Oh, well, good things will happen. Don't worry. No, we have to act on the belief that if enough of us act, we can make a difference. And I think the first thing we have to do, and what governments have been reluctant to do, is to say we've got to stop making it worse. Now the government is saying we've got to start adapting to the changes. Yes, we do. But we have to stop making it worse, which means, for heaven's sakes, we've got to get off fossil fuels as quickly as we can. And the good news is there are all kinds of, of alternatives. We just have to make the commitment. That, But my hope is action. We've got to act. Hmm. I am here with David Suzuki. He is, of course, a legendary CBC broadcaster. He's the former host of The Nature of Things. Uh, in a few minutes, uh, we are going to go to the phones to take your calls. In fact, why don't we go to a call right now? We have Dakota Kelm on the line right now from Kamloops, British Columbia. Hello, Dakota. Hello. How are you guys doing? Well, what's your question for uh, David Suzuki? So being in Kamloops, you know, 2017, we had like the worst air quality in Canada. And, um, you know, being a youth, I'm very passionate about this. I recently bought uh, Greta Thunberg's new book, The Climate Book, which is like this all-in-one kind of book. Um, but my kind of question is, how as a youth can I amplify my voice beyond just Kamloops and the community level to like a provincial, national, or even international level, level like uh, Greta did? Well, you know, it's tragic that uh, Greta, who had... Uh such a profound impact. Uh, COVID kind of um, put an end to that, to the momentum that it built up. But now, is, of course, it's going to build back up. I think there are uh, a couple of things that we all have to do. One, of course, is that we're all contributing to the uh, the changes that we have to, to uh, uh, stop uh, in terms of what we buy, in terms of how we move ourselves, uh, we we have to relook at that and and begin to change, but I think where youth uh, can do something is you can speak out as Greta has. You've got every right to speak out and to say politicians have who are representing us have got to look beyond just the next election, and uh, the the most effective way that youth can do that is to get mom and dad and grandma and granddad and aunts and uncles to be the warriors on your behalf. 
to say that these damn politicians have got to look beyond the next election. I was at a meeting where I met a member of parliament from the, uh, uh, he's a liberal. Uh, he's been a supporter of me and the David Suzuki Foundation for many years. And I said, why aren't you guys declaring an emergency the way that you did with COVID? And he said, well, if we do that, uh, then the opposition will get in and they'll be way worse than we are. So they allow a political thing uh, to, to keep them from acting now to do the right thing. We can't go on doing that. And your mom and dad and your relatives who care about you have got to be the spokespeople to say, look, stop fooling around. Get on this as an emergency because it's the future for our children and grandchildren that is now being held ransom. Hmm. Dakota, thanks so much for that question and for calling in. Uh, Xander I. Celine reached out through AirCheck asking, David, have you ever changed someone's mind about climate change and spurred that person to take action? If so, how are you able to do that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've had the great privilege and opportunity of talking to Canadians on the nature of things for all of these years. And I've had, uh, I've written uh, columns, uh, weekly columns in newspapers for over a decade. I've, I've written many books and, you know, I've said in, in many ways, I and the environmental movement have failed. We've failed, of course, we've raised issues. We've got uh, provincial parks and federal parks now as a result of the, the movement of uh, environmentalists and people that care. But we haven't changed the way we see ourselves in the world. And I think we're all trapped by the, the feelings that rather than the fact that we are embedded in nature and utterly dependent on nature for our well-being, we've come to think we're so smart, we're at the top of a pyramid and everything below is, is for us. And uh, you know, we've set up economic and political and legal systems to guide us, but we leave nature out of that. And uh, we've got to now recognize that we're a part of a web of relationships with all other plants and animals, with the air, the water, the soil, the sunlight. That's the world in which we live. And we have a responsibility. Mm. And uh, that's a hard thing uh, a hard thing to see ourselves. And that's where I, I think the failure of uh, the environmental movement has been a failure to shift the, uh, the, the values and beliefs we cling to. We had a, a prime minister for 10 years who said, we can't do anything about global warming. That's crazy economics. And by saying that, he elevated the economy above the very atmosphere that gives us air to breathe, mm. that gives us weather, climate, and the seasons. So we've got to stop this idea that we're in charge and our institutions, our economies, our, our, our politics, and all of that are the most important thing. Mm. If we don't embed nature, you know, where do we think we get it? Pure air. This is the thing, though, to get to that that point, though, David. I mean, we are um, this this change you're talking about. We are so far up that tree, right? We can't just let go. So Warren Rourke has a question here for you that he got to us through Aircheck, asking, "What's the right level of personal sacrifice then to mitigate climate change? How necessary is full system change?" Well, look, it, we're all a drop in the bucket, right? 
And so you, it's very easy to say, well, what difference does it make what I do when the big corporations are doing that and all the billions of people uh, around the world? Yes, we are a drop in the bucket. But if you get enough drops, you can you can have a significant impact. And I looked to, to Japan in 2011 after the uh, Fukushima disaster, when they had the big earthquake and then the tsunami, uh, they, you know, their, their entire electrical grid was threatened uh, at that time. The Japanese people, without any legislation, reduced their electricity use by 20 percent in a year. And they kept that up over the years. So it is possible for for people, ordinary people, when they're they're committed to make a, a, a difference, to each act individually, but still have a collective uh, impact. And so, you know, it depends on how you feel. If you understand we're all contributing, however insignificant we may feel, we still collectively have an impact. So we have to try to to uh, to do something in our own lives. Mm. And, uh, but we also have those who represent us who are have to make the big decisions. And uh, we've got to make sure they understand that this should be the highest priority. And we're in an emergency now. We need a mass movement of the uh, of people to indicate to our politicians, we want this done now to get started on an emergency. Well, Dr. Ishmael Marani has uh, called in to join the conversation, called in from Ottawa, Ontario. Hello, Dr. Marani. Uh, good afternoon. And what's your question for David Suzuki? David, or uh, Dr. Suzuki, you know, we signed on to the Kyoto Protocols, we signed on to the uh, Rio, we signed on to Paris, and we're, we're still not getting anywhere. You talk about what the federal government should be doing, or our governments, or we should be doing, but what can the individual do so that he can feel good about doing his or her part in the climate crisis? I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I strongly recommend that you look at this group in England called JUMP. Uh, you know, about 15 years ago, I toured across Canada with what we call the Nature Challenge, which was try to get us to reduce our, our footprint on the environment. And there were 10 suggestions we made. They were things like don't eat meat one day a week, uh, walk or take a bike or take a bus uh, one day a week. Uh, um, there were very simple things that we could do to have an effect. We're the, the, the challenge is far greater. And Jump has now said, if you really want to reduce your impact significantly, and if we do that individually, collectively, it could have a huge impact. And so they look at things like our clothing, our food, our transportation, our travel. And uh, it's a much bigger challenge now. Clothing, for example, uh, you know, we're into consuming all of the stuff that we buy, whether it's clothing or whatever we use. 
comes out of the earth and it comes at a cost to the environment. And so uh, our consumption is one of the major ways that we now are contributing to the degradation of the of the planet. So in terms of clothing, for example, they say, try to uh, buy uh, only limit yourself to buying three new articles of clothing a year. And in, for a lot of people, apparently, this is a huge sacrifice. I just recently <laughs> talked to my Mary, wife. <laughs> I did a recent Mary Kondo cleaning of my closets. And my goodness, I, I gave away all kinds of clothing. But I've got enough clothing, so I don't have to buy any more clothes until I die. Well, I'm a lot closer to death than most people. But uh, so clothing, that's one thing, uh, you know, and... Uh, you know, I, I've got a real uh, hobby horse about this, that when the war ended in 1945, we were impoverished, my family was impoverished, and clothing was uh, something that we had to buy very carefully. We always bought blue jeans, and all my life I've worn blue jeans because denim wears like iron. When I see people now buying brand new blue jeans already ripped to shreds, that to me is an indication of what we uh, what we think about the uh, the environment. That we want to look good. I don't happen to think it looks good, but apparently it's quite fashionable to have your clothing ripped to shreds. But they're destined for the dump. You know, as soon as your that fashion passes by, what kind of an animal clothing is to keep you warm in in the winter and cool in the summer? Uh, and I guess to look good, but uh, you know, uh, let's look at the function and let's be careful about our buying. You know, in terms of of uh, uh, travel. Electric cars in the long run are not the solution. If you look at the carbon footprint of a, an electric car over a lifetime from when you uh, dig up all the minerals to then the manufacturing, processing, uh, transportation and all of that, the amount of reduction in greenhouse gas by that car in an entire lifetime is only 3% of a reduction over a combustion engine. So what's the future uh, then for transportation? Well, we've got to do a hell of a lot more of, of bicycling, walking, and public transit. Hmm. We can't, The whole idea that everybody should own a car, but an electric car is ludicrous. You know, the biggest uh, consumer of uh, electric cars right now is China. Well, do we want, uh, you know, a billion Chinese with all their own personal uh, electric cars? That's that's absurd. This is not the way that we should be transporting ourselves. In terms of, you know, my biggest sin has been flying. I've done a lot of flying on behalf of the nature of things. When uh, a few years ago, I said to the nature of things, I'm not going to fly anymore for uh, to do interviews when we've got Zoom. We've got to start making programs in a different way. But still, there you know there there are times when the hosts have to travel to to be at an actual location. Uh, for me, I've uh, I look at what Jump says, and they say if you want to do a short haul flight, let's say Calgary to to Vancouver, uh, once fly once every three years. Hmm. If you uh, want to do a long-haul flight from Vancouver to Toronto or Toronto to London, uh, once every seven years. I, and, 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 and I ask you about the alternatives for transportation just because we know that this summer the first hydrogen-powered train in North America is going to be taking passengers through central Quebec. This is, I mean, just a demonstration for now. But I wonder how optimistic you are about, about that new technology. 
That is, no, stop looking at that. Yes, there are new technologies coming in, but right now you can't take a bus from Vancouver to Toronto. We have no bus uh, grid across Canada. Buses have to be one of the major ways. We, electric uh, powered uh, buses have to be one of the, you can only take one train from Vancouver to Toronto a week. We don't have a system of transport. 80% of our trains now, uh, train movement is to transport goods, a lot of oil and gas and stuff, but not people. In Europe, 80% of the uh, tra uh, trains are to transport people, and they have a grid that's electrified. We have one train a week from Vancouver to Toronto. If you're like me, old, and you need a compartment to do that, for me and my wife to do that is $18,000. This is crazy. Trains are not an alternative. And not only that, the carbon footprint of a train is greater than the carbon footprint of an economy class airfare because it it's pushed by diesel. So we need big decisions now made by governments. We need a grid for people to transport themselves, but transport themselves efficiently, but with a lower carbon footprint. Hmm. Uh, Jamie Drysdale has a question for you. He's calling from Ottawa. Hello. Hello, David. Um, I have a question. Um, how do you feel that um, we do you think that we'll be able to mitigate the effects of climate change? And if so, uh, what do you think will be part of the solution in terms of our infrastructure uh, and our society? Well, I mean, it means uh, we have to change virtually uh, every aspect of the way that we live. Mitigate. We've, we're, we're past the edge of the cliff. We're already uh, on our way down. We've now set in motion uh, changes that are going to take not decades, not even uh, a century, but many centuries to equilibrate. Most of the heat that's been absorbed over the last few decades has been absorbed by the oceans. And that's going to affect the currents and the movement of, of uh, heat and cold uh, in profound ways that are going to take decades, centuries to finally equilibrate. But I would say the first thing we have to do is stop making it worse. You know, and that's the, we've got to make, commit. Canada has never met a single international promise that we've made to stop uh, increasing and begin to reduce our carbon emissions. We've never met a single target. And now what are people in Ottawa talking about? Oh, net zero by 2050. What kind of a commitment is that? How many elections will there be between now and 2050? At least seven and probably more. And every new government acts as if what the previous government did, oh, forget that, we're going to do something different. How many politicians in office today will still be in office by 2050? None. So who can we even hold accountable when we fail to meet these kinds of targets? Net zero by 2050 is nothing. It's not a political promise at all. Mm -hmm. We've got to start reducing now. And we've got to hold our pol politicians, hold their feet to the fire. We've got a question for you from Devin Barthiom, who uh, called in and asked, how do we change minds of the developing world to care more about climate change? 
Well, you know, you're asking a total failure. That's what I've been trying to do now. That's what I certainly tried to do in 1989 when we did a five-part radio series called It's a Matter of Survival. Got a huge response uh, from the audience. And in fact, that's how uh, we started the David Suzuki Foundation. We got 16,000 letters. This is before email in 1989 in response to our program. It's a matter of survival. And we're going to rebroadcast some of that uh, starting July 11th. And and uh, what we said there, showed there was what could happen by the to the world by 2040. And it was a terrifying projection of where we were going. But the, the good thing was we said, we don't have to reach that. We That's 50 years away. We don't have to reach that if we start now. But we uh, And we got a big public response. We set up the David Suzuki Foundation trying to find solutions. Uh, we have, for example, we have shown after a three-year study with scientists, We've now shown that Canada could have a completely affordable uh, grid, electrical grid, powered by renewable clean energy and no new dams, no new nukes. We could have a complete renew green uh, electrical grid by 2035. All it takes is a commitment of the so-called leaders that are leading us into the future. We need an emergency declaration and get on with the, the, the many solutions that are already out there. Environmental groups, there are all kinds of groups out there trying to show what can be done once we make the commitment. But the changes are going to be enormous. And as I say, uh, our biggest impact individually now is as consumers. Hmm. My mom and dad got married during the Great Depression. And because of that, they hammered into me the lessons that they learned. And one of the things they said is, you know, you have to work hard for the money to buy the things you need in life. But don't run after money as if having fancier clothes or a bigger car or a big house makes you a better, more important person. You know, you need the necessities in life. Hmm. How much of what we now consume is a necessity? We, uh, we've got become profligate consumers to keep the economy going. But this, is, this can't go on, it seems to me, in, in a carbon-constrained world. Um, we have Kyle Walkup on the line from Innisville, Ontario. Hello, Kyle. Hey, how's it going? Not bad. If we can get you to turn your radio down, that'd be great because we can hear the other feedback in the background there. But what, what's your question for David Suzuki? My question for David Suzuki is, um, you know, I, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm inspired by him and everything. You know, it's like I'm, I'm a Canadian artist myself. I listen to CBC, you know, all the time. Um, I guess my question for him is, uh, I know I could ask all the environmental questions I want, but as, as a person, um, as a Canadian artist, what would he suggest me to do uh, to, to be the best person I could be, uh, to be even, maybe even played on this station one day? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, as an artist, I, I know a lot of artists that are, are out there supporting environmental groups, performing to help raise money for environmental groups. Artists, uh, musicians especially, have been uh, uh, people that have uh, very, very quickly come to uh, 
come to assist environmental groups. I don't know why that is, but music, I think, as well as uh, art, uh, really touches people in a different way. I think if we continue to uh, to talk about things in economic or political terms, we get kind of bogged down. But music touches us. We need an anthem. We need an anthem in the way that you know we shall overcome uh, or uh, imagine have touched us. And there you go, Kyle. You got it from David Suzuki directly. Write an anthem and put that anthem out. Uh, something like the the we shall overcome or that sort of thing. Thanks so much for your call, Kyle, and a, a massive thank you to uh, David Suzuki. Thank you for being uh, our guest today. Environmentalist, activist, academic, and broadcaster David Suzuki, the former host of CBC's The Nature of Things. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you to everyone who called today. If you missed part of the show today, you can listen to Checkup's full two-hour version by streaming it on CBC Listen app or go to our website, cbc.ca slash checkup. There you can download the AMA, our podcast, Check Up in 60. Coming up on Radio 1, the world this weekend will have the latest on the aftermath of the tornado that hit central Alberta and why other parts of Canada need to prepare for more of these kinds of weather events. If you want to share comments or appear on the show, cbc.ca slash aircheck is the spot to go. On Facebook, find us by searching for Check Up CBC. A big thank you to all who helped this week, uh, who helped. Our, our phone screeners are Chuck Mulgat and Hannah Abrahamsi. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, uh, Brendan Sylvia, Vivian Ming, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing, Tim Lorimer, and program assistant, Chiara Greco. A cross-country checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenner, Mark Hennick, and Theo Van Busacom. Digital producer, Paul Hanchuk. And senior producer Steve Howard and Richard Goddard. I'm Ismaila Alpha in Toronto. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.